from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. I promise you one day we will get out of John chapter 14. Today is not the day. Next Sunday looks better, but no commitment, all right? And as you turn to John chapter 14, let me ask you a question just to think about. When your heart starts to flutter because of something that's going on in your life, the world, and it just, you, you kind of feel the trouble coming. Maybe it's been a difficult day at work. Uh, maybe something is going on in your life with your family. Maybe it's just, well, the Lord is crazy and I've had enough. What do you do to bring comfort? How, how, how do you comfort yourself? Right? With, with children, it's pretty easy. Right? Kids, they have their favorite blanket, their favorite teddy bear, so they'll run and grab their teddy bear and their blanket, and they'll, they'll hold it real fast and, and use it to bring them comfort. As adults, we, we typically replace the teddy bear and the blanket, right? Uh, let, let's be honest, a lot of times we replace the teddy bear and the blanket with uh, chocolate chip cookies, brownies, you know, something like that. I, my, my, here's my comfort go-to. When I've had a hard day, you, you can kind of tell because you'll walk into the kitchen and there's a plate of nachos and a Coke in front of me. That, that's kind of, I've had a hard day, I'm going to soothe myself. I tell myself the nachos are healthy because it's got healthy stuff on it, right? Anyway, we find something. Maybe you read a book, you watch a movie, you take a walk. There, there is something that we seek out to comfort ourselves when our hearts starts to flutter a little bit. You get to John 14, and the very beginning of John 14, Jesus knows what is about to happen. He knows the cross is just a few days away, and he knows in that moment that the disciples' hearts are going to start to flutter. I think many times we run past John 14, 1, and fail to recognize that when Jesus looks at the disciples and says, let not your hearts be troubled, that that really is a topic sentence for all that follows from John 14 through John 17. Remember, as we have we've looked at from 14 to 17, this is Jesus speaking. This is his final discourse to just his disciples. And he starts off by saying, look, do not let your hearts be troubled. And then he goes on and he is going to tell them and give them reasons why their hearts should not be troubled. Now, one of the things when you read this passage of scripture and you get is that I find really interesting, their hearts are going to be troubled because of what Jesus does. Right? Have you thought about that? Jesus knows when he looks at the disciples, he's going to be the one that is causing their hearts to be troubled because he knows that he's going to the cross. He knows that he is going to leave them. Right? Throughout this section, and I kind of started counting, and I think I got to somewhere around 14 or 15 instances where Jesus says explicitly, I'm leaving you and you cannot come, or him leaving is alluded to. And you're going, well, Jesus, you know, if you didn't leave, my heart wouldn't be troubled. But he has to. That's why he was sent. That is his mission. But he is going to provide reasons. 
And while every week I could title one more reason or three more reasons or four more reasons why our hearts should not be troubled, I'm, trying, I'm going to try not to do that with the title of the messages from here on out and, uh, through verse, chapter 17. But keep that in the back of your mind. It's critically important. However, this morning I'm going to. And we're going to look at three promises that Jesus gives us that are a result of his leaving which is kind of different. We would think the promises would be better if he would stay. So let's read John 14, verse 1, down to verse 14. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to get where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or it's believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father." Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that, my, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So this morning, three promises that Jesus says are a result of him leaving. Number one, Jesus promises us greater intimacy. He promises greater intimacy. And the intimacy that we are going to have is with The Father. Look very carefully at verse 9. Jesus says, Have I been with you so long you still still do not know? Right? If you have seen the Father, you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Philip, every time you look at me, you saw the Father. Philip, as I am talking to you right now, standing there talking to you, you, you see the Father. And this is a truth that John started his gospel with. He says, no one has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, meaning Jesus, has made him known. Think about that statement for a minute. No one has ever seen God. Now, I know we immediately go back to the Old Testament. We want to go back to Abraham. And we think about all the times that God spoke to Abraham. We think of the provisions that God made as he was taking Isaac up to the mountain. We think of the institution of the Abrahamic covenant where God is there and they're passing through the offering. But even in those times, Abraham did not see the Father. 
We may fast forward to Moses because we think, surely Moses saw the Father, right? Because I remember that, that Moses was on top of the mountain, and he says to God, hey, God, let me see you. And God responds to him and says, Moses, you cannot. But I'll tell you what, you can see the backside of my glory. And, and Jesus, or excuse me, God basically shoves Moses into that, that mountain and passes behind him. But even then, Moses did not see the Father. We think of all the times in the wandering where the Shekinah glory of God shone down into the temple, and they knew that God was there in their presence. Yet the whole people of Israel, none of them saw the Father. And here Jesus proclaims to the disciples, You have seen the Father. You have seen the Father. How? How is that a true statement? Well, it's a true statement because Jesus is in perfect unity with the Father. Look back at verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. There is this intimate unity between the Father and the Son. And this is a good time, as, as we see this, to bring up the Trinity. To remind ourselves that there is one God. The Lord our God is one. Yet He has revealed Himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are one in essence, yet three distinct persons. My little soapbox the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. The Holy Spirit is a person. So what Jesus is saying here is not that he is the Father. Okay, Jesus is not the Father. They have the same essence, different persons. Yet they are one in essence and one in purpose. And the purpose that Jesus comes is to reveal the Father to the world so that when the world looks at Jesus, they see the Father. So what does Jesus reveal? What does Jesus reveal to the world about the Father? Well, he reveals to the world that the Father desires people to be saved. That the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as, a some, as, a, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what does Jesus do? Jesus comes and says, I am sent by the Father to reveal the Father to you. Through me you have seen the Father, and what you have seen is that I am going to make a way for you to be saved so that you can have repentance. Jesus says to Philip, Jesus says to us, look, that, that's why I'm here, so that you can be saved. And Jesus and the Father are one in absolute unity of essence and purpose. Now, just a little bit of foreshadowing. And I know what I'm going to do when I do this. All of you are going to drop down to look and see what is in verse 20. But in verse 20, Jesus is going to make another claim. And it's, a, it's going to be amazing of who is in who. You can look that up later. So how does this then bring greater intimacy for us? Right? Because that, that's what we want to know. That's, that's great. But, but how? Well, the fact is we can see the Father through Jesus. 
It's, it's a statement of meaning for us. It gives us meaning. The fact that Jesus is the Father and, and the Father is in Jesus and they have this perfect unity and essence and purpose and that through Jesus we can be saved and we can have access to the Father gives us significance to our life. You read the newspaper this morning, you watch the news, you, you see what is going on, and you will walk away reading those articles thinking that the world is some impersonal force, right? I mean, the world is out there, and it's this, this impersonal force. And with this impersonal force, then you read the articles, the news, and the stories, and it just it brings people to despair. It looks like the world is, is just arbitrary, it's random, there's no rhyme or reason, and we're just basically on the planet for a ride, right? This morning, quoting Star Trek, <laughs> it's a Star Wars, right? I, I got to make that distinction. There's an episode of Star Trek, and you can go back and you, you can find it if you want to. But basically, in there is a great quote. It says that we are ugly, giant bags of mostly water in a flexible container. Right? We are ugly bags of water in a flexible container. Now, when you read the articles and you watch the news and you listen to people, that's really what they're conveying. That that's all that you are in the world. This impersonal force is acting upon you so that when something unexpectedly goes wrong, oh well, you're just an ugly bag of mostly water in a flexible container. And this is just what happens because you're on this planet. Do you hear the despair in that? There, there's no hope in that. Because when that happens, what we want to understand, what we want is to realize that there is not just, you know, the world is just spinning and we're on it. We want to understand that there is a plan. There is a master plan of what is going on. We want significance because we want to be part of that master plan. That's what we yearn for. That's what we want. And through that darkness, the gospel bursts in and says, look, there is a God in heaven whom you can know, who has created you, who loves you, who says you can know me, who says that we can come to him in prayer. Right This morning, was it not great that as we have prayer requests, we can go to our Father in heaven who created the world and say, Father, this is what is upsetting our hearts. This is what is hurting us. And that we have a Father in heaven who is going to listen to His children. He's not going to turn His head the other way and be like, no, I don't have time for you. Go out and pray to the world. Oh, great and personal force of the world. I'm grieving, I'm hurting right now. Will you do something? No. Because this impersonal force that people think that we live in has no power. Has no intimacy with it. Yet Jesus says, you know what? I'm the way to the Father. And if you see me, you see the Father. And you now have an intimacy with the Father and you have significance because you are a believer. And it brings us to that intimacy that we can have contact with, speak to, have the Father listen to us and know that one day 
we will be in the Father's house for all eternity. But secondly, Jesus promises greater works. Jesus promises greater works. Look at what he says, and he introduces it in verse 12 with the 22nd truly, truly we've been tracking through. I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. He says, greater works, greater works. Hmm, that's, that's an interesting statement. Right? In, in verse 11, Jesus calls them to believe in him that he and the Father are one. And he says, or at least believe on the account of the works that I've done. Hey, you've seen some great works, right? You've seen the water turn to wine. You see the feeding of the 5,000. The lame have walked. The blind can see. And now Jesus says, you're going to do greater works than these. And it's good for you that I should leave because you are going to do these greater works. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not sure that I can do that. Right? I've never tried to turn water into anything other than water. Right? I've never uh, tried to, at times I wish I could, just you know, multiply my dinner. That would, that would be really easy when all eight of us were around the table. I could just you know, cook one hamburger and one potato and be like, bam, and we're all fed my grocery bill would have astronomically decreased, right? I've never tried that. And y'all are laughing, but I guarantee you right here this morning, and y'all can raise your hand on this one. I guarantee you this morning, every single one of you have tried to do the works that Jesus has. No, I hadn't. All right, I'm not a pastor, so I can't say let's bet. Raise your hand if as a kid teenager, young adult, or older, smarter purpose, you tried to run on water. Some of y'all are lying. I mean, I appreciate those who, all of you have tried to walk on water, right? You've been at the pools, like maybe I can. You've been at the lake, maybe I can do it. And you get like, what, a step and a half? Right, we've all tried. Some of you say, no, I hadn't. Sue is swearing up and down she hasn't. I'll ask Ann and Carol later. All right? But you understand, people are like, oh, I think I can walk. Why do we think we can walk on water? So we got all these greater things, and we're trying to go, all right, what, what, what does this mean? Because from Jesus' lips, this is a pretty astounding statement, is it not? Let's start with what he doesn't mean. What he does not mean is that you're going to be able to do miracles. He absolutely, that's, that's not what you're going to do. In the Gospel of John, you know this, that all the miracles are called signs, and they're given for a specific reason, right? And you know that that specific reason is, because I've been telling you, you've got to keep coming back to this verse. So you should know this verse by now, that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so what? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the God, and that by believing in Him, or believing, you may have life in His name. That is why Jesus does the signs. Jesus doesn't do the signs just to be a genie in the bottle. They're specific signs pointing to the fact that He is God. So you're not going to be able to do this. And we need to recognize this. Right? Because there are too many people out there today 
who still think and or still want to see miracles and go, if I see a miracle, I will believe. Too many people out there think that they have the power to heal. There was an article in the Christian, in Christian Post the other day that I read, and here's the quote. It says, quote, I came for power. I came for breakthrough. I came so somebody could get healed. They, they want to see the miracle. Have you ever asked why? Have you ever asked, why do people want to do the miracles? Why do they, they want to do this? Well, I'm going to be very blunt with you. It's because it elevates them to the position of God. Sells more books and gets them invited to more speaking engagements. That, that's why. You can watch healers have these great crusades and heal all these people. And two blocks away is a hospital and they don't walk down to the cancer ward and heal everybody in it. The greater works that we're going to do has nothing to do with healing. It has nothing to do with just manifestations like Jesus did. It has nothing to do with that. Which brings us back to the question, well, what is it? What are we going to do? Well, we need to understand something. Look at what Jesus says at the end of, you're going to do greater works, right? At the very end of verse 12 says why. He says, I'm going to the Father. We've got to understand that the context of doing greater works is incumbent upon Jesus going to the Father. So let's play trivia time. When does Jesus return to the Father? After what? Huh? After Pentecost. But what happens? What happens between this and when Jesus returns? He goes to the what? Cross, and then he's what? Buried, and then he what? resurrection, then he goes to the Father. So when that happens, what has been completed? The way of our salvation has been completed. Right? We see this very clearly. Hebrews chapter 9 through 10, I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read Hebrews 9, 11 down to 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with his hands, not made with hands, that is, not of his creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So Jesus now has gone to the Father because He has secured our redemption. And that is key to understanding what the greater works is. And the greater works is really very, very simple. Jesus said that through His death, burial, resurrection, ascension, that He is going to draw all people to himself. That is why he came. At the same time, the strategy of drawing all people to himself is through his disciples. It is through you and me. The greater work that we're going to do is proclaim the gospel and see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's going to be the greater thing. Think about it, if you want to, just geographically. 
Jesus preached the gospel, and the gospel is for all people all over the world at all times. But he preached it in a specific time, in a specific location, to a mostly Jewish audience. How about today? Where is the gospel not preached in all the world? Through all time, 2,000 years on, we're still preaching the gospel. People are still being saved, but it's not just the Jewish people. It is all ethnos. Everybody who hears the gospel can be saved. And what started with 11 disciples that are named and other disciples that we read in the New Testament, by the end of Acts, grows to thousands and now has grown to millions. That is the greater thing that we are going to be doing. That is the greater work. You know what's really kind of sad? When these people hold these crusades to have healing, they actually miss the miracle. They really miss the miracle. Because the miracle is that we get to preach the gospel. And then when somebody comes to faith in Christ, when an unbeliever confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that's the miracle. That's the greater work. When they are moved from being dead in sin to alive in Christ. Who else can do that? No one. And while this morning we unabashedly affirm that salvation only comes through Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, for some reason, chooses to use us. And you know what? The fact that He uses us, that's a miracle in and of itself too, isn't it? But he says, go, be my witnesses. Go do the greater works that I have given you. Go preach the gospel and see the power of Christ through your preaching when someone comes to know Christ as Lord and Savior. But then finally, Jesus promises greater prayer. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. This I will do. There's a part of this that doesn't seem too radical for us because when we pray, we, we typically end, you know, you know, we pray this in the name of Jesus or in the name of Jesus, we pray. For the disciples and other religious leaders of the day, this would have been just astounding, right? Because the only name that contained power was God. And here is Jesus saying, there is another name. Remember, we were reading in Psalm 103, and we said, bless his, his holy name because his name has power. Or you go to Psalm 25, 11, for your name's sake, Yahweh, because there, there is power in his name. And Jesus is looking to the disciples and to everybody around saying, hey, look, now there is another name that contains the same power as the name of God, and it is the name of Jesus. It has the same power. You know, and this, again, this is one of the things the unbelieving world knows but doesn't know. And the reason I say that is because when they decide to swear and go with GD or Jesus Christ, they use those words because it's a powerful statement. Now, they, they're, they're blaspheming and they're breaking commandments. Yeah, they're, they're you know, uh, using the Lord's name in vain. Yet subconsciously they recognize that in those two names, there's a great deal of power. 
And here Jesus is saying to us, look, you can pray in my name. And if you ask, I will give it to you. Pray in the name of the one who provided our salvation. So how, how do we pray in Jesus' name? And does he give us everything that we ask? We, we kind of know the answer to that because love is going, well, I've got some things that I've asked that I hadn't gotten. I'm pretty sure at the end of my prayer, I said, in Jesus' name, I, 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 put, it, I put it in there. We, we don't quite understand, I think, what it means. Again, Jesus' name is not the name in and of itself does not contain power. He's not a magical genie that, again, we toss at the end of the prayer. Jesus, I wish for a new house in Jesus' name. You know, so how, how do we pray in Jesus' name? I think we look at him. We look at him for the model. Because when we pray in Jesus' name, what we're doing is we're recognizing his nature and his perfection. So how did Jesus pray? I mean, we could absolutely go to the Lord's Prayer, right? Which really isn't the Lord's Prayer. It's our prayer. Because he says to the disciples, he says to us, this is how you are to pray. And he starts off with our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He starts off hallowing, worshiping the name of God, giving his name honor. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We pray for your kingdom to come. We pray, Father, for your, your will to be done. Give us this day our daily bread. We, we pray for the provisions that we need today. Father, forgive us for our sins and, and deliver us from the evil one. We, we pray that. And so here in this model prayer, everything that Jesus is focusing on points back to God. I'm going to worship you. I want your kingdom to come. I want your will to be done in my life. How about the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus bows and he prays and he continues to pray. And he says, what? Not my will, but, but yours. This morning for us to pray in Jesus' name, is, it's not a magical prayer to get whatever we want. It's, it's not some kind of incantation for more health, more wealth, more prosperity. It's, it's not a prayer so that we can have a perfectly happy life with nothing bad happening to us, and we just drift through life, and one day we see Jesus. That's not what it is. It's much deeper than that. When we come and we pray in Jesus' name, it is an omission. It is an omission of our inability to do any of that. It is an omission that were it not for him, we could not live this life. It is an omission that we must set ourselves aside and say to Jesus, not my will, but your will. So when we do that, you want to know how to have a yes to your prayer? Because we all pray, we, you know, we want the answer to be yes. We fail to take into account that no and wait are equally valid answers. But if you want a yes for your prayer, then pray in Jesus' name where you pray to him, Father, I, I, Jesus, I, I'm coming to you today and I'm, I'm going to worship your name. 
I'm praying for your will to be done in my life. I'm praying for your kingdom to come. I'm praying that you forgive me my sins. I pray that you will keep me from the evil one. You pray in Jesus' name and you pray like that, you know what you're going to get? You're going to get a yes. But do you notice in that prayer, it's not going to make your life easier. It's not going to take away Oh, maybe the, the bad thing that is happening externally to you, it's not going to make you healthy, wealthy, and famous. What's it going to do? It's going to align yourself underneath the authority of Jesus and saying, I recognize that you are my Lord, you are my Savior, and I am conforming my will through the power of the Holy Spirit to be in tune with your will. And when Jesus says, I have come to make you to look more like me, do you think then when you pray that, that Jesus would go, nope, not today? Of course not. Of course not. That's what he wants to see in our life. So if you will do that, your answer will be yes. And you go, well, what does this have to do with Jesus going to the Father? Because it all hinges on that, right? These great promises hinge on Jesus going to the Father. Hebrews 10, uh, verse 2, Colossians 3, 1, Acts 2, 33. We all read that Jesus right now is where? Where is Jesus right now? At the right hand of God. He is seated at the right hand of God. Listen to this, Romans 8, 34. Jesus, seated at the right hand of God, intercedes for us. And with this picture this morning. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. You pray. And just imagine for a moment, Jesus leaning over and whispering in God's ear. Hey God, our child, he's praying. He, he wants to submit himself or herself to do your will in their life. I think we ought to say yes. Praying in Jesus' name has great power. And it comes because He has ascended to the Father. All these promises are because it was better for Him to leave. Now, I recognize this morning that there's a part of us that wish Jesus was here. Because if He was here, we'd know the answer to what would Jesus do. We'd see it. We'd know it. You know what, though? It should amaze us and bring us comfort when he states to us that it is better for him to leave us. Because when he leaves, he gives us great promises to cling to. He gives us great promises to use, to draw on, that we can use to live here and now until the great promise of seeing our Savior face to face. It's better that He should go. So do not let your hearts be troubled. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbank.com 
mbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.